This is an independent project funded by no one else but our listeners. For subtitles, please visit our YouTube channel. Subscribe for free on YouTube to get us closer to monetization. For access to all the locked content, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for less than three US dollars per month on Spotify, or support us on Patreon and Ko-fi. Details are in the descriptions. Thank you. Journey to the West, an audio drama series. Production notes, episode nine. Hello, dear listeners. This is Lin, the voice of the Fifth Monkey. How are you guys doing without Wu Kong in the story? If you're watching this from YouTube, we're also on Spotify. If you're listening from Spotify, do head to YouTube and subscribe for free to our channel because it will take us one step further towards monetization. If you would like to listen to the next chapter already, please become a paid subscriber on Patreon or Spotify for as little as three US dollars a month, and all the exclusive content will be unlocked for you. Anyway, chapter nine is a short one, but we still have a lot to cover in this episode. First off, if you happen to be reading the Yu or Jenner translation of Journey to the West, our chapter nine is very much the same as the first half of your chapter ten. As for why this difference exists, please refer to production notes eight. The reason why this chapter is shorter than usual is because we took out a huge chunk that was the poetry battle between Zhang Shao and Li Ding at the opening of the chapter. When we said they engaged in seven rounds of battle, we did mean seven solid exchanges of a total of fourteen poems. They started off short, but gradually got longer and longer. They're also filled with literary references that can confuse even the most well-read native readers. In order to not have our listeners drift off mid-chapter, we took out the poems and kept things short. These two country poets will not appear in the novel again. Moving on to the other characters we met in this chapter, here we meet yet another new Dragon King. Like we said before, dragons in Journey to the West are practically local water gods. They reside in rivers and seas and have some power with regard to regional weather and fishery, but they're not very high-ranking gods, as you can tell from this chapter alone. At no point or even sub-branch in the Chinese mythological system were dragons ever the top god. They are always subordinate to higher human deities. Those who can obtain human form get to rule the waters, while those who remain in dragon form perform low-skill labor like. Pulling carriages for the Jade Emperor. The fact that they are the symbol for imperial power in ancient China meant that their existence is there to serve whoever held that power instead of to hold that power themselves. In this chapter, we follow the arrogant Dragon King of the Jing River, who took orders from the Jade Emperor, got seen through by a human fortune teller, had to beg for a pardon from a human emperor, and was to be executed by a human. Minister, doesn't sound like an almighty powerful god, does he? And apart from the lack of authority we see in the Dragon King, readers may also find it rather fascinating that all these human characters have so much supernatural power to the point that they can not only foresee but literally decide the fate of a god. So here we need to point out, probably not for the last time, that the mortal world in the Chinese mythological universe has always been a bit of a melting pot. You have heaven occupied exclusively by the divine, and hell by the dead. 
The mortal world being between these two places is home to basically everything in between. There are very few physical borders that separate mortals from immortals or magical beings from non-magical ones. This is why some modern adaptations that put different beings into different geographical locations, like Demon Island, always feels kind of off. The Chinese audience may not be able to explain exactly why this feels wrong, but a lot of the times. It is because this goes against our perception that different beings simply live naturally among each other. This was why a woodcutter could show Wukong the way to Patriarch Puti. He was about as ordinary a human being as you can get, yet he's the neighbor of this great immortal who taught Wukong all these incredible skills. It's also why Er Langshen could live in the mortal world despite being the Jade Empress's nephew. You will begin to appreciate this more and more down the line when we come across new characters on the journey. Which takes place in the mortal world. For example, when Wukong seeks help from fellow immortals, he doesn't always have to go up to heaven. Sometimes he just has to travel to very remote places like mountains and islands to find them. But at the end of the day, it's still within the mortal world. Finding out the immortal next door, be it good or bad, is a very common trope in Chinese folklore. A lot of the times, they would disappear the moment they are found out. The assumption is just that anything has the potential to be alive and divine. This is why none of the humans in this chapter were actually surprised that a dragon king showed up, because while they didn't see dragons every day, they knew the statues in all these temples were deities that actually existed. And given all that, is it really so shocking that some humans of excellence managed to obtain supernatural abilities? And on top of that, empresses are a category of their own; they are considered children of heaven, so they carry this aura of divinity with them as long as they are on the throne. They are the designated rulers of the human world, and are naturally deified to a point that overrides a lot of supernatural elements. This is why, even though the empresses themselves do not possess magic powers, evil spirits very rarely choose thriving kingdoms and cities as targets for attacks, because they know they would be overpowered by the moral authority of the human emperor, who was sent there by higher powers in the universe. So. That's the deification of empress. In short, you can pretty much get the idea that the humans in this world are far from completely helpless. We're just painting a rough picture here, but you will get plenty of examples of how this world works in future chapters. By the way, dream vision is another common trope in Chinese literature. Xuanzang's mother dreamed about giving birth to a special boy, and his grandmother had a dream about her family coming together. Remember? And here we see the emperor meeting the dragon king in a dream as well. Like this just happens all the time, giving people visions for future events or bridging contact between different forms of beings. This can happen to anyone, not just people with special abilities. Now let's actually talk about the story. The tale of this human fortune teller predicting the death of a dragon king is not a journey to the West original. It has appeared in folklore before the novel came about. And was also documented in Yongle Dadian, or the Yongle Encyclopedia, commissioned by the Ming Emperor almost two centuries before the publication of Journey to the West. There is no evidence that the fortune teller Yuan Shoucheng actually existed, but his nephew in the story Yuan Tiangang was a real fortune teller in Tang Dynasty, whose life was also shrouded in mystery. But we'll leave it at that because they won't show up again in the novel either. Moving on to the Emperor Tang Taizong. He's the second emperor of Tang Dynasty. His family name is Li. 
and his given name is Shi Min. His reign is called Zhen Guan. These are the facts that, thankfully, the creators got right. But like I said before, accuracy was not on their mind as they weaved the story, because Tai Zong is the temple title. In other words, the posthumous title for this emperor. Literally, nobody would call him Tang Tai Zong while he was still alive, because that title has not been created yet. He would be our protagonist for the next couple of chapters, so we will discuss more later. But overall, you just have to know that he's revered as a wise, humble, and generally awesome emperor in Chinese history. He's best known for being open to advice and criticism by his subordinates, and Wei Zheng was the most outspoken and famous minister during his reign. So not only you have an emperor who was willing to listen, but you also had these wise scholars and generals as ministers who spoke their truth to power. And remember Li Jing, the Tang general who was deified and later became the pagoda-bearing heavenly king. He also served Tang Taizong during the Zheng Guan years. So you have basically the best people doing everything in their power to put the country back together after a brutal civil war following the fall of the previous dynasty. There is a reason why the Zhengguan reign is regarded as the opening of a golden age in Chinese history. There is a reason why Chinatowns are called Tangrenjie or Street of the Tang People in Chinese. We'll talk more about them in future production notes as well, since they will still be around for a bit longer. And to conclude this episode, we return to Yuan Shoucheng's words before the Dragon King entered the room. He was giving out predictions based on birthdays. You may already be familiar with the Chinese zodiac system, which consists of twelve animals: rat, ox, tiger, rabbit, dragon, snake, horse, goat, monkey, chicken, dog, and pig, in that order. This is a repeating twelve-year cycle. This year, 2023, for example, is the year of rabbit. This zodiac system corresponds to Di Zhi or the earthly branches, which is also an ordering system similar to Tiangan. The heavenly stems, which we briefly introduced before, so the Yin Chen Sihai line from Yuan Shoucheng was him listing these earthly branches. And what about Tai Sui? In the original text, this deity was referred to as Sui Jun. Both names are short forms for Tai Sui Xing Jun, Star Officer of Tai Sui. So the reason we have the twelve-year cycle in the first place. Is because it takes planet Jupiter about 12 years to orbit around the sun. So planet Jupiter was known in ancient China as Sui Xing or Star of Years. The worshiping of Sui Xing eventually resulted in personification, which was how Star Officer of Tai Sui came around. Without going into too much detail, you just need to know that Tai Sui is the god or gods who give out blessings based on your particular year of birth. They are related to the Jupiter orbit cycle, and your fortune depends on your own year of birth and the particular Tai Sui god who's overseeing this current year. Again, very rough picture here because nobody on the team has had our fortune told from this angle before, and customs with regard to Tai Sui worshiping varies in different places. You could try ask your local Chinese fortune teller if there is such service. And that's all for this episode. This episode is sponsored by Patron Daniela S and our subscribers on podcast. Again, please subscribe and follow us on social media. This is an independent project that could be fully funded by just a quarter of our listeners paying about three US dollars every month. Otherwise, we don't know how long this series can sustain. 
We're on Spotify, YouTube, Patreon, and Ko-fi, so you can choose either monthly subscription or one-off donations. We really appreciate the support. This is the Fifth Monkey, and thank you for listening. Journey to the West, an audio drama series, is an independent production by the Fifth Monkey. For subtitles, please visit our YouTube channel. Subscribe for free on YouTube to get us closer to monetization. For access to all the locked content, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for less than three US dollars per month on Spotify, or support us on Patreon and Ko-fi. You will have a chance to access the latest release and other exclusive content. Head to www.thefifthmonkey.com for links to all the platforms we're on and support us on social media. Shares, comments, emails—all are welcome. This is Lin. See you in the next episode.